What's most important in the eyes of God is what he sees inside our heart. That's been the central theme in our study of David so far, and I think we're going to see that that continues all the way through. We want to know, as we've looked at the story so far, what is it that God sees in the heart of David when he chose him to be his king? Because we know that David's not just any normal king, right? He's a king in the lineage of the Messiah. He's a king connected by a covenant promise. David has a key role in God's redemptive plan. So what is it that God sees in David's heart? And as we've talked about, the Bible gives us a unique insight into this divine perspective. It helps us to identify truths that we simply cannot see on our own because it tells us that Man looks at the outward appearance, but only the Lord looks at the heart. So what is it that God sees in David's heart? Last week, we talked about how David was a king who was content to serve. Immediately after having been anointed as king, what does David do? He goes right back into the field to be a shepherd. He didn't feel any sense of entitlement like he was too good for that now. He didn't rub it in his brother's faith. He just simply went back to do what he was doing before until God called him to do something different. He was a king who was content to serve. We also learned that David was faithful in the small things so that it prepared him for the big things. His soul as a shepherd was nurtured in solitude. His motives were purified in obscurity. David was faithful with the insignificant monotony of taking care of sheep so that he could be prepared for the sizable task of facing Goliath. Unlike Saul, David wasn't too worried about his own reputation. In fact, God's reputation was more important to David than his own. We know that because he was motivated to face Goliath simply because Goliath was insulting his God. And in David's mind, that's worth fighting for. Even if it meant he risked his own life to do so. We see that David's faith is what allowed him to see God's power perfected in his weakness. That's why we are able to see a sling and a stone defeat a sword and a shield. This insignificant shepherd stand against a very experienced warrior. God was exalted and God's people rejoiced because his power was perfected in weakness. David was faithful in the small things so that he could be prepared for the big things. He was a king who was content to serve. These are just some of the things that we're beginning to see as evidences of David's heart. It's what God saw when he looked at David. This morning we're going to continue looking at the heart, but we're going to shift our attention a little bit, and we're going to begin to look at Saul's heart, the people's choice for king. You remember we talked about how the scripture tells us there was not a more handsome man in all of Israel 
Saul literally stood head and shoulders ahead of everyone else. Saul was impressive from start to finish. He came from an impressive family pedigree. They were wealthy and well-known. Saul was selected based on his image. And therefore, Saul ruled in an effort to protect that image. But in the end, what we're going to see is that Saul was ruled by an idol of selfishness that is hidden deep within his heart. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we want to do so humbly. Because we know you know what's in our heart. We can put on all kinds of outward appearances, but you see right through those. And this morning, we want you to speak to our heart. We want you to reveal things in our lives that are important for us to see. Don't let us walk past them. Don't let us ignore them or be distracted by things around us. Instead, let us hear and see clearly what you intend to speak to our hearts. That's our prayer. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So before we get to our passage in chapter 18 this morning, I want us to give a little I want to give a little background of some very significant events that happened in the life of Saul that give us some insight into what's going on in his heart. So if you would go ahead and turn to chapter 13 first. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. Saul is the king of Israel, anointed by Samuel the prophet as chosen by the people of God. And Saul has uh, uh, organized a a strong military force. His son, Jonathan, is a a commander in this army. The Philistines have become one of Israel's most hated enemies, and they're preparing for battle. So the prophet Samuel has given Saul some very explicit instructions as they prepare for this battle with the Philistines. He tells them to organize your men at Gilgal and wait for me to offer a sacrifice before you go into battle. He's very explicit. He says, hold your forces until we offer the sacrifice. I'll be there within seven days. But Saul starts to get anxious because on that seventh day, Samuel still hasn't shown up. So let's look at what happens beginning in verse 8. Now he, being Saul, waited seven days according to the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, 
And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. To obey is better than sacrifice. Listen to those words. To obey is better than sacrifice. Those words will become a testament to Saul's life and a lesson he never quite learned. To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul was impatient. He was unwilling to wait. It was the seventh day and people were beginning to get nervous and he was losing some of the confidence of his people. So instead of waiting for Samuel, as was instructed by the Lord, he said, bring me the offerings, I'll take care of this. And then when he was confronted by Saul, what did he, or Samuel, what did he do? He made all kinds of excuses about his decision. The people were scattering. You were late. I had no choice. He even says in verse 13, I forced myself to do your job. You see, Saul refuses to admit he made a mistake. He blames everyone else, including Samuel, and takes absolutely no personal responsibility. Because in his heart, he's convinced he's done nothing wrong. And that's what happens when you hide the idol of selfishness. You're never wrong. You're never wrong. Let me give you another example. Turn to chapter 15. And let me give you a little context to this as well. Chapter 15. Saul has once again been given very explicit instructions. This time they're going to battle against the Amalekites, another people, like we saw with Goliath, who are taunting God and his people. So God says, go into battle. Just make sure you take no spoil. Go into battle. Just make sure you take no spoil. In other words, do not profit from this battle. Why? Because this battle is a judgment of God. But Saul didn't listen. He didn't listen because he had greed in his heart. He wanted to look good in the eyes of the people. And so he keeps some of the best things for himself and destroys everything that's worthless. Look at chapter 15, verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12. And Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because Saul is caught dead red-handed. The instructions were explicit, right? Don't leave anything. Take no spoil. This is a judgment of God. But Saul didn't listen because he wanted to look good in the eyes of people. So he destroyed everything that was worthless and kept the good stuff for himself. And when confronted by Samuel... 
he immediately tells him when approaching Samuel, I've done everything you've told me to do. <laughs> Only to hear Samuel say, oh, really? Then what do I hear? Because it sounds like sheep. Look at what he says in verse 15. And Saul said, well, they brought them from the Amalekites where the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul is trying to cover his compromise under the appearance of religious devotion. And Samuel's not buying that. Why? Because he knows what's in Saul's heart. And so he confronts him. And did you notice already how Saul starts to explain the actions? Whose fault was it? Their fault, right? Look at what he says in verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. And have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils. Sheep and oxen. The choices of the things devoted to destruction. Again, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's not my fault. It's their fault. This was their idea. You see, there was an idol hidden in Saul's heart. It's an idol of selfishness. We actually see that idol exposed back in verse 12. Because after having destroyed the Amalekites, he builds a monument. To who? Himself. He built a monument to himself. Because that's who ruled the throne of his life. The idol in Saul's heart was Saul. It was himself. He wanted the recognition. He wanted the admiration. He wanted the praise of the people. And when self rules, there is no space for God. Look at how it continues in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burst offerings and sacrifices as in obeying? The voice of the Lord, for behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and insubordination or arrogance is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. So, with that context in mind, let's go to our passage in chapter 18. 1 Samuel, chapter 18. Let's fast forward to the battle that took place between David and Goliath. We looked at that last week and we know that David defeated Goliath. And so let's see what happens next, beginning in verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. 
And Saul sent him over men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out all throughout the city of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with music and instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but they've only ascribed to me a thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. What we see happening here is basically a victory parade. This is a celebration. It highlights the women because these are the the wives, the moms, the, the sisters. These are the ones who are most happy to see their sons, their husbands, their brothers return from battle with the Philistines alive. And I don't believe that this song had any slight whatsoever to Saul. It was the facts that Saul had slain his thousands and and David, because of this massive victory over the Philistines, has slain his ten thousands. But when your worth is based on your image, you cannot stand it when someone else gets more attention than you do. We start to read things into otherwise innocent situations. This is a celebration. But Paul, or Saul, sees it as an insurrection. What does he say? Okay, what next? Is David going to take over the whole kingdom? He's reading stuff into this that simply are not there. What has David done to even put that thought into Saul's mind? Has David had any evidence of being power-hungry and prideful? Absolutely not. In fact, if anything, just the opposite. Saul is making this up in his own mind. And that anger that he has and not getting the same praise as David has leads to jealousy. And that jealousy leads to suspicion. He's making assumptions about what's in David's heart that are not there. Nor does he even realize that he couldn't see them if they were. Because man looks at the outward appearance. Only the Lord can look at the heart. Now look at verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. And he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And the spear was in Saul's hand. Now I want to pause there because this verse is slightly disturbing. If you read it again, it says that there was an evil spirit from the Lord that came mightily upon Saul. So I think we need to try to figure out what exactly is going on here. We've already seen from the passages that we've looked at that Saul has been unwilling to obey God's word despite very explicit instructions. In fact, Samuel tells Saul, doesn't he, that you've rejected the word of the Lord, over and over again. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, then God has rejected you as king over his people. As we said from the very beginning of this series, Saul has everything afforded to him 
that David had. God put him in a position of authority over his people. He anointed him, had Samuel anoint him as king. He gave him his spirit. He guided him with his word. But Saul was prideful. He was impatient. And he chose instead to go his own way. He rejected the Lord's guidance. And so God let him go the way he chose to go. What we see happening in verse 10 is God's judgment for Saul's willful rebellion. The evil spirit cannot influence Saul outside of God's permission. God is in sovereign control, and therefore, he's ultimately responsible. He allows Satan's influence within divinely ordained boundaries. We see the same thing happening in the New Testament with Judas. Judas was invited by Jesus to follow him. He afforded Judas all the same opportunities as he did the other 11 disciples. But like Saul, Judas chose to go his own way. And in both cases, God is sovereignly in control. And he used those sinful choices to carry out a redemptive plan. God allowed the evil spirit, and those men chose to follow. There's a passage in James. You don't need to turn there, but I want you to listen to this, because when I think about this verse in 1 Samuel, this is the one that helps give me perspective. It's in James chapter 1, and it says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Saul is being carried away by his own sin. He is responsible for his own choices. And let's just see where those choices lead him. Look at chapter 18, verse 11. And Saul, with that spear in his hand, hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. First thing I want you to do is notice that Satan's influence always attempts to destroy God's anointing. Satan's influence always attempts to destroy God's anointing. We see it here with Saul and David. We saw the very same thing with Judas and Jesus. The evil spirit seeks to destroy God's redemptive plan. But God is in control. And he will use even the sinful choices of evil men for a redemptive purpose. And I also want you to notice, did you see the word twice there? And apparently that's in one sitting. So twice in one sitting. Saul tried to pin David against the wall with his spear. 
Everyone knew that Saul was not in his right mind. That's why David was there. It was David's music that helped calm him, that brought him peace. They knew that he wasn't in his right mind. They just didn't know that he was malicious, that he had an intent to kill. But because of the inside of God's word, we know the motive of his heart. It is a murderous envy. And Saul was intentionally trying to eliminate David. So let's look at how it continues in verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and came before the people, and David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came in before them. You'll notice here that the author goes to great lengths to draw a, a very significant contrast between David and Saul. And he'll do it actually several times within the next couple of chapters. He says, the Lord was with David, but his spirit had departed Saul. Saul did not fear the Lord. He feared the opinions of people because he was trying to protect his image. But Saul did not fear the Lord. Instead, he used his God-given power in an effort to destroy those who opposed him or he was threatened by, in this case, David. See, David didn't go to the lines. Saul didn't send him to the front lines to be a commander of thousands as a promotion. Okay, this is not a promotion in his job. This is an effort to get rid of him because that is the front line of battle. That's the most dangerous place that a person can be. And Saul is hoping, upon all hope, that David gets killed in the line of duty, fighting for his people. But instead, he prospered because he's being protected by God's sovereign hand. Saul was tormented by his selfish insecurity while David prospered in God's sovereign hand. All right, flip over to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. Read with me in verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So what we see here over a period of time is Saul's jealousy has now morphed into a deadly conspiracy. He doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't confess his sin. He chooses instead to take matters into his own hands. And if David won't die in the field of battle, then he'll just kill him himself. Instead of dealing with his emotions, Saul decides to eliminate David. He calls his servants and even his son Jonathan to carry out his plan. What a coward. Can't even do it himself. He convinces his son that he needs to take the life of David. But there's a problem. Jonathan knows David's heart, and he knows that he's a good man, and this is not right. And so God uses Jonathan in this situation to ultimately save David's life. Look at verse 2. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. 
I find out anything, then I shall tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his own hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against an innocent man and sin against innocent blood, putting David to death without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Because Jonathan knows David's heart, he defends his character before his father. He reminds his dad of David's loyalty to the throne. At no time has David done anything less than give his full support, even putting his own life at risk. When he took down Goliath, all of Israel, including Saul, rejoiced in that victory of great deliverance from the Lord. Jonathan was there, likely by his dad's side, And they celebrated together what God had done. So Jonathan confronts his dad. And he says, look, if you take David's life, you will be guilty of a great sin. Because you and I both know David is an innocent man and his blood will be on your hands. The Lord brought us peace through David. David has been nothing but loyal to you. Well, everything that Jonathan says is true. And in a moment of sanity, Saul actually agrees. And for me personally, this helps me with verse 10. Because this tells me that Saul had every ability to recognize what was good and right and true. He was convicted and he knew what Jonathan was saying was right. But he betrayed his convictions because what he knew in his head never made it to his heart. And he would betray what he would know to be true in that moment. Look at verse 7. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as formerly things have been restored. When there was a war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, and they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in the house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. That's three times. But he slipped away, David, out of Saul's presence so that, the, so that he struck the spear into the wall And David fled and escaped into the night. Once again, everything was good until David started to prosper. His success incited Saul's jealousy. David was not trying to promote his own agenda. In fact, he was putting his life at risk. He was going to the front lines of battle in an effort to defend his people. And just like he did when he defended the life of his sheep, God delivered him in the field of battle as well. 
But Saul was ruled by a desire to please people. His jealousy drove him to vengeance. And once again, he tried to pin David to the wall. He knew it was right, but he chose to do what was wrong because he was ruled by an idol of selfishness. This time, we'll see that David is going to flee for good. He will not return to the throne until God hands it to him. He leaves the security of the castle to now learn what it means to take refuge in God. And that's where we'll pick up next time. But as we consider what's going on in Saul's heart, it's really hard to overlook these wild swings of emotions, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, even just that scene there in the castle where everything's peaceful. David's playing on the harp. He's playing beautiful music that is soothing to everyone that's listening, including Saul. But in a moment of rage, he picks up his spear and tries to pin David to the wall. What's going on inside of Saul's heart? Because there's something that's not right on the outside that reflects something wrong on the inside. It's kind of like those instrument panels on your car, right? When that temperature gauge starts to go to the hot side, it tells you that something's wrong with your engine. There's nothing wrong with that gauge. So don't go replace the gauge because it's not reading normal. It's telling you something's wrong with the engine. And as long as you ignore that gauge, the larger the chance is you're going to destroy that engine. Well, for you and I, our emotions are the gauge of our heart. They tell us something about what's going on in our engine, (laughs) the thing that runs our life, what's in our heart. And so I want us to take some time as we finish up to, to consider three of the emotions that we see very clearly in Saul's life and consider what it might look like in our own. Because they are gauges to reflect that something's not right with his heart. It's anger, fear, and suspicion. Those are the three gauges. Anger, fear, and suspicion. Let's start with the first one, anger. We learn from this passage that David's anger was incited because of... or Saul's anger was incited because of uh, his jealousy for David. When the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, he immediately had a response of anger. It's like being in the lunch line, seeing the plate next to you and servings. Somebody gets more than you do. And you look at your serving, and you look at their serving, and you're thinking, that's not fair. They got more mac and cheese than I did. I want more mac and cheese on my plate, right? See, whenever we when we pull out that comparison stick. We lose every time. Whenever we pull out the comparison stick and start to compare ourselves with someone else, we lose every single time. Because comparison with other people robs the joy of what we have. It makes us angry. And that anger is ultimately rooted in pride. Saul says, before you know it, David will be taking over the whole kingdom. Well, what kingdom? His kingdom. He built a monument to himself. This is all about Saul. His anger is rooted in pride. He wants more praise on his plate. That's the issue. Saul's pride 
is the source of his anger. So, for you and I, when anger starts to surface in our life, we need to pop the hood and we need to look at our pride because very often that's the real issue. If you're threatened by someone else's success, there's a very good chance that the kingdom you're trying to build revolves around you. Because very often, pride is the source of our anger. Don't ignore the gauge. The gauge is not the problem. It's what's behind it. Anger, and now let's look at the gauge number two, fear. Saul's anger led to fear. In chapter 18, verse 12, we saw that that Saul was afraid of David. And it tells us why. It says, because the Lord was with him, but he had departed Saul. See, Saul's anger and his fear was not based on David's aggression. He wasn't prompting or provoking him. Saul's fear was he was threatened by David's faith. And David had a relationship with God that he knew he didn't have. But here's what's crazy. Instead of falling on his knees before the living God, Saul willfully chooses to oppose him. He's working against the ultimate answer to his fear. Saul refuses to surrender. That's the issue. So when we see fear start to surface in our life, instead of tightening our grip, very often we need to relinquish control. We need to trust in God's sovereignty, not fight against it. For example, do you remember last week when we were talking about Peter's sermon to the Jewish audience he was speaking to? It was a convicting sermon, you'll remember. He basically says, you killed the Savior who came to set us free. And apparently, the Spirit was at work in the lives of those people because they were convicted. It says, they were pierced to the heart. There's a heartfelt conviction is what that's saying. And so, really, out of fear, they asked the question, Well, now what do we do? They had fear of what he had said and what the consequence would be. Their sin, having been exposed by that sermon, confronted an issue in their heart, and they were afraid, as they should be. Because the judgment of God against the sin of man is a fearful thing. And we should look at that in the same way and be just as afraid. The judgment of God upon sinful man is a terrible thing. And we should be afraid. The question is, what do you do with your fear? Well, Peter gives them instruction. He tells them to to repent and be baptized, to, to turn to Jesus, the one they had crucified, as the answer to their fear because of his forgiveness of their sin. Taking that wrath upon himself so that they did not have to endure it. Their faith eliminated their fear. Believing in what Jesus accomplished on their behalf. See, the more faith we have, the less there is to fear. Faith removes fear. Okay, last gauge. Suspicion. Saul's anger and fear caused him to make assumptions about David's motives. We know because of the inside of Scripture, that he was seeing things that simply did not exist. 
he started to believe things about David that simply were not true. His wrong assumptions created a barrier in his relationship with David. And here's the reality. No relationship, whether Saul or David or you or someone else, can ever survive under a cloud of suspicion. Suspicion destroys relationships. So when you see suspicion start to rise to the surface, my recommendation based on what we've looked at in Scripture this morning is that you look at your own heart before you start making assumptions about someone else's. What do you see? What are those gauges telling you? Anger, fear, suspicion. They're warning signs. They're dials. They're gauges that's telling you something's not right in your heart. Don't try to fix the dial. Anger's not the issue. It's the pride behind it that will destroy your heart. Fear's not the issue. It's what you do with the fear that's the issue. Suspicion's not the issue. It's why you're suspicious. <laughs> that's the issue. The longer you ignore the motions, the more likely you are to destroy the engine. You'll destroy your heart. When you look at the life of Saul, that's the only explanation for what he's doing with David. His heart is being destroyed because of an idol of selfishness that he refuses to expose. Instead of coming before the Lord in repentance, he takes matters into his own hands and he goes his own way. And I've said before, and I believe this with all my heart, the worst possible judgments that God could ever make on any one of us is to let us have our own way. May it never be. We close this morning. I want to close with a, a psalm. I don't know that David tied this directly to these situations, but it really, in my mind, seems to reflect a lot of what we looked at in our passage this morning. So if you would just bow, listen to these words, and let me use them to, to close in prayer. Psalm 31, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My life, my times, my heart is in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my fear, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord. All you saints, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.